Hello and welcome to Series 6 of the Hay Festival podcast. We're sharing some of our favourite events with the world's greatest writers and thinkers, mixed with backstage conversations with them about the nuances and influences that affect their writing. Today we're joined by author and journalist Rebecca Mead, who after 30 years living in New York, moved back to the UK, her native home. Her book Home Slash Land is a poignant reflection on what makes a home and how to be present where you are. We're starting with a section of her event from this year's Hay Festival, talking to lawyer Philippe Sands. So the New Yorker, I mean, the difference between journalism in America and journalism in the UK, certainly when I moved to the States, which is getting on now for nearly 35 years ago, um, there was... I mean, among British journalists, there's a whole uh, kind of attitude of like not to take yourself too seriously. And it's a bit of a game. It's a bit of a lark. You could do that. Maybe you could even become prime minister off the back of doing that. You know, there's, it's a little bit uh, rough around the edges, a little bit, um, you know, not too much care for fact or, you know, never let a fact get in the way of a good story, that kind of thing. Um, the New Yorker and American journalism in general takes itself more seriously than that. And... Um, uh, I think maybe some of that has changed and there is the, there's now in this country a lot more long-form journalism that's modelled on The New Yorker. But The New Yorker, this idea that, you know, the writers have this incredible luxury to go off and spend a long time reporting a story, not just talking to the one person that, you, you know, the, the, the hour in the hotel room with the movie star that you ask them the same questions everybody else asks them, but you, you know, get to spend multiple times talking to somebody traipsing around the country or the world following them watching them what they do that kind of thing um and then there is this you know legendary fact checking department i started off my career as a fact checker not at the new yorker but at new york magazine um and back then there wasn't an internet so my job as a fact checker was to phone people up and and say did you say this or you know is it correct that you were wearing a yellow cardigan on the day that your father took you down to the you know that those kinds of things um uh and 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 so as a writer when you are um treated to this incredible uh care and and attention you know my words are the words that end up on the page and my name is the name that ends up atop the article and I take responsibility for it but you know I have an amazing editor I, there's a c amazing copy editor and then there's a fact checker who goes through the whole thing and you know makes sure that I haven't said that it was a Tuesday when it was a Wednesday or that the shoes were blue when they were black or even you know much more consequential errors than that um, and it's like being um, I, I mean I can't even convey the joy that there is with you know, a checker finding out something that is slightly wrong or a copy editor saying, I mean, we have these meetings at the, at, you know, when the piece is going to press, we'll have these meetings now they're remote because I'm remote. But, you know, the copy editor will say, you know, I was wondering whether we should perhaps have a semicolon here instead of a full stop. And I mean, it's just glorious. It's amazing. And in this age of non-truth in the two countries that you have lived in in the last few years why are facts like that so important because <laughs> because the truth matters I mean I don't even know how to begin to answer that question um, and I think that there's been a you know in the years that I've been a journalist there has been a real erosion in the reputation of the 
profession. And, um, you know, I started being a journalist in the late 80s to early 90s, so I didn't quite still have the, like, the, 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 headwind of whatever it would be of Watergate but there was still of you know and of Watergate having been exposed by heroic journalists but there was still a slight leftover of that feeling of journalism as a sort of crusading profession for good now I didn't go into it to be a crusader for good I went into it because I liked writing and it's fun to go talk to people and go to different places I don't have a high moral purpose in what I'm doing especially um but uh but I think I benefited from that um, uh, respect, maybe, or belief or credulity that was granted to journalists. And now, you know, we're the enemy of the people. Um, and that's a like, very difficult... Like the, like the lawyers. Like the lawyers, yeah. And it's a very um, difficult uh, position to be in because there are, you know, portions of the readers... Well, they, they're not reading us, but there are portions of the population who just think that what you're writing cannot possibly be true. Beginning now the segue into homeland, just those years in Weymouth in South England, mm. your sense of America as a child <laughs> and your sense before heading off to America. Yeah, I mean, I grew up, so I was born in London, uh, but as I say, you know, lived, grew up in Weymouth, which is very provincial, uh, backwater kind of a place, and from which I always knew that I would be leaving. I mean, it was... Because? Because unless I wanted to work in an ice cream shop or as a, you know, a, a chambermaid in a, in a, ho a hotel, there weren't any, there wasn't any job that I might do there there's no that, you know there's nothing there's nothing there except seasonal mm. seasonal work um, so I always knew I would leave and was always expected to leave um, I'd never been to America I remember going to um, Chesil Beach uh, which I guess faces towards the west and I remember sort of looking across when I was like 17 or 18 as I was about to go off to university and sort of looking across the water and like imagining uh, the Manhattan skyline kind of, uh, you know, as if I were, you know, coming up to Ellis Island and sailing into New York Harbor. Um, a psychoanalyst might wonder about the, you know, Freudian phallic uh, connotations of me saying, that. anyway, whatever. But um, I, 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 but I'd never been to America. And my thinking in going, to, in moving to America, uh, you know, I, I, I graduated from university uh, and rather than just apply for the same handful as, of jobs in journalism that everybody else was applying for, I thought I'll go to New York and I'll get something different and then I'll be able to move back to London and hopefully a newspaper or something will hire me. Um, but I'd never been. And so I landed there uh, with um, very little money and knowing nobody. And um, I was, it was absolutely exhilarating and terrifying and, um, and very uh, strange and an education all, all in itself. I wonder whether this is a moment to just take an extract to give you a sense oh, sure. um, of arrival in America in those first days. So you get a sense, you're getting a sense of Rebecca's voice, but maybe the passage that we were referring sure, to before. Sure, yeah, 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 yeah. You're, you're 21 years old. I'm 21 years old, and I've just arrived in uh, at JFK Airport with two with two bag, two pieces of luggage because that's what you're allowed to take, and that, so that's what I took with me. 
um, I was enrolled in a graduate journalism program at New York University, and my first home in the city was in a dorm on the corner of 3rd Avenue and 9th Street. I was assigned a peculiar triangular room on the fifth floor, a scrap of habitable space thriftily eked out from the building's irregularly shaped footprint. There were two windows, one looking west towards the bustle of 3rd Avenue and the other facing squarely south downtown. I had a view of the twin towers of the World Trade Center, luminous pink in the summer dawn, glittering with bands of light when darkness fell again. They were hard to look away from, twice the height of any other building rising upward from the outcrop of Lower Manhattan. Their doubled presence seemed to be a kind of dare. Why build one outrageously massive tower when you can build two? The Twin Towers were an exorbitant challenge in defiance of expectations, and so was the whole incandescent city. New York thrilled me, and it scared me. Every day I walked a little further, mapping out the longitude and latitude of my new habitation. I went east to Tompkins Square, where in the week before I moved to New York, there had been a night of violent rioting after police descended on a tented city that had been established on the scrubby lawns of the park to shelter homeless people. The tents were gone, but the jittery sense of unrest remained. I walked to the West Side Highway and along the Hudson River, past the derelict piers that still served then as gay cruising grounds, up to the meatpacking district, where sex workers in impossibly high heels stalked cobblestone streets that stank of blood. I walked uptown to Central Park, which seemed less like the stately green spaces I knew from London and more like an antique circus with exuberant baseball games and determined joggers and its weekend gathering of roller disco dancers whose graceful and athletic gyrations I watched from the sidelines of the blacktop where they spun to music pounding from boomboxes, my own heart pounding with joy and envy at the sight of the dancers' sheer, exhilarating disinhibition. I think my heart beat faster all the time those first few months in New York. I subsisted on lentils and Café Bustello, splurging on a slice of pizza or a falafel sandwich on St. Mark's Place as a rare treat. When my parents sent me some cash for my birthday, one of the three American graduate students with whom I shared a kitchen remarked that now I could afford to eat twice a day. I scoured the, ranks, I scoured the racks of the Salvation Army store on 4th Avenue, hoping to find the winter coat I knew I'd need before too long. The weather would get more brutally cold than anything I'd ever experienced in England, and hunting for boots to replace the shoes I'd worn out by walking everywhere to save the dollar it would have cost to take the subway. Most of the time I felt like the little match girl in the fairy tale, except, I ruefully realized, that if I were try to try to sell matches, the immigration authorities would come down on me for violating the terms of my student visa. I was frazzled, exhausted, hyped up, sometimes so overwhelmed by the city that I felt as if I were transparent, as invisible and fragile as glass. Gradually, though, my life started to acquire a greater substance. I got an interview with the assistant to the editor-in-chief at New York magazine, who must have realized that by hiring me under the guise of a four-credit internship, she could get an assistant of her own. Every day was an education. I did photocopying for the art department and made calls for the writer who covered advertising. I opened cartons of mail sent to one of the editors, an older woman with dyed blonde hair and bright pink lipstick and unswerving commitment to tent dresses. She told me that 40 years earlier she'd taken a vow never to pay for a theater or movie ticket and she went to see everything. <laughs> she sent me off with passes to nightclubs and invitations to openings. She took me to the New York City Ballet. I'd never before been to see a ballet. And in the intermission she gossiped about which of the members of staff at the magazine were millionaires. I got roped into helping out in the fact-checking department, where I'd call boutiques to confirm the accuracy of the credits in a fashion spread. 
Was that bracelet genuine Ormulu? Did that bangle really cost $1,500? Intermittently, the magazine's Bronx-born gossip columnist would mock my accent. I'd like to check some facts from the neighboring cubicle. I'd planned to return to England when my course of studies ended at NYU. I'd even bought my one-way pl plane ticket home through a discount travel agent and started to envision the vague outline of an immediate future, moving to London, finding a flat, looking for a job. But weeks before I was due to leave New York, an alternative presented itself. The magazine was looking to hire a permanent fact-checker, and an editorial assistant with whom I had become friendly was looking for someone to replace her departing roommate in a fourth-floor walk-up in Soho. And so, on a salary of $19,500 a year and a rent of $650 a month, with a bedroom window opening to a fire escape that overlooked staggered roofs topped with water towers, I took the first step towards claiming New York as my home. Thank you. To listen to the full event with Rebecca, you can subscribe to our Hay Player at hayfestival.org forward slash hayplayer. After her event with Philippe, I caught up with Rebecca and wanted to know more about how she adapted to life coming back to the UK and what the differences were between there and the States. Firstly, I asked her if she notices a difference in how she spends free time, depending on whether she's currently writing a book or a media piece. There's a kind of cogitation that you have to do uh, that seems like it's in empty hours or spare time, but walking or just, you know, <laughs> like going up and down stairs in the house or whatever but um, that all that is all part of the process of writing um, but your question is whether there's a difference between the use of spare time in writing a book or mm. in writing journalism and I suppose there is I mean when I was writing this book one of the things this book is about leaving um, leaving America and moving to England I lived in New York for 30 years and moved there when I was 21 years old. Never intended to stay for my whole adult life, but ended up spending, you know, the first 30 years of my adult life in New York. And uh, and then, for a variety of reasons, moved back to the UK in um, 2018. And uh, one of the things that I do in my spare time is swim. And swimming uh, in England, in the cold waters of England was for me um, like a, I mean for, it was a thing I'd never done before you know I never I, I mean I, I have swum my whole life but I had never tried to swim through the winter for example and I know it's become a very fashionable thing to do here um, but I so I started started to do it and there's a there's a um, that there's a process of acclimatization to the water that all the swimmer you know yeah. all the lady swimmers at the ladies pond in Hampstead which is where I started doing this will tell you you know you have to become acclimatized and you have to get used to the cold and you know it feels hard but you just have to you know three at least three times a week and it gets easier so we did this and it was a very challenging thing to do but while I was doing it the first year that I did it I thought a lot about acclimatization in a much broader sense not just getting acclimatized to the cold water that I was in that moment that if I stopped swimming in I might drown and die but getting acclimatized to being back in Britain um, after all these years away and there's a way in which sort of the chilly waters 
of this country serve as a metaphor for you know, re-immersion in this country and the kind of chilly nature that there is to a lot of what this country offers and the beauty at the same time and the kind of challenge and the austerity of it at the same time. So I would, I would swim around the pond or sometimes the Lido in Parliament Hill where I also go, lots of other, many of your other writers here, I'm sure I see them in the lanes, um, thinking about acclimatization and thinking about austerity um, and thinking about, uh, you know, what it what it was to 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 reimmerse myself in in this country. So yeah, it did it, it that that it did figure very prominently in my thinking about how so as a as a metaphor mm -hmm. for what I had done with my life and what I was trying to do on the page. Definitely. I mean, I'm sure swimming is a great time to to think as well. In many ways, it sort of feels yes, if clearing. It's, it is, if it's not so cold that all you can think about is how cold you are. I mean, it's an amazing, you know, like it's a great thing, great time to think when it's, once it gets above 16 degrees, but below, much below that, it's like you're thinking about how, you're thinking about life, you're thinking about survival, yeah, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I mean, I'm exaggerating, but only slightly, you know, when it gets really cold, you're only thinking about how cold it is. So it concentrates the mind. Okay. It's not... It's not a place in which, uh, um, yeah, I mean, of course, there are contexts in which, you know, the mind wanders freely because you're just, you know, you're moving fluidly through comfortable water and it feels wonderful and you can float away and think. Um, but the, the sort of year round, you know, that's like when I go to Greece, different feeling. <laughs> you know, Hampstead Heath in November or December or January is thinking about, Jesus Christ, you know, how do I... How do I keep going for the next two minutes? Sure, sure. Do you manage to to find ways to do that kind, same kind of swimming when you're travelling or you're on tour, or, or do you have to sort of, sort of leave it in London? Um, I do. Uh, it's, I mean, the an, another thing about having become a, you know, ridiculous year-round swimmer is that you then have the the ability to sort of get in the water wherever you go. So I grew up on the south coast of England grew up by the sea um, and uh, you know and I swam in the sea when I was a kid but I would never have swum when it wasn't a warm day um, but now I can go down there and all year round I'll just go in the water and uh, it's another way of you know it's like taking a walk but in the water yeah. <laughs> I mean it's another way of being outside and enjoying nature and um, and and enjoying you know there's a way there's a way in which I felt like I really had to shift my understanding of what swimming offered and what swimming was. I used to think of it as a thing that you did for recreation on a nice day in the, with the sunshine to cool down. And instead, I started to think of it as a discipline and a kind of practice um, like meditation or yoga or something like that, um, where... Uh, you know, there's a there's a sense of accomplishment and um, a sense of having overcome something that I didn't think I would ever be able to do, like rising to a challenge that I didn't think I'd ever be able to or ever want to rise to. Um, but also, like it's like un it's like having a key that unlocks a door to different places, different waters, different worlds. Um, Sounds rather romantic. Yeah, that's lovely. That, that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, are you a writer by any chance? <laughs> um, do you 
you feel like obviously you spent so much time in, in America and, and you're back in the UK again now do you feel like you see a big difference in how Americans and Brits spend their free time I mean American from my from my experience the, their work ethic is very very intense compared with Britain as well yeah. and it's it's um, they are they slave away um, in a way that makes me feel rather guilty um, do you, do you see much of that difference? Oh my God, yes. I mean, for one thing, Americans don't get the amount of uh, vacation time that Brits get. Um, I mean, you get two weeks off. If you have a regular job, you get two, two weeks off a year, which people here think is absolutely insane. And it is absolutely mm. insane. And chances are you might not even take those two weeks. If you're really hard driving in your career, you might just not ever take that time. And when I was young and first moved to New York when I was 21 and and I fully embraced that kind of you know work was my life and work was everything I did and I worked all hours and I loved what I did so it didn't it, I, it didn't matter I was happy doing what I was doing the whole idea of work work-life balance that people talk about so much now I had no concept of what that 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 notion that didn't even occur to me um, but now when I go back and I look at people living that kind of driven life. Um, uh, I I think that there's an insanity to it, and I don't. I mean, I don't produce now. I don't produce less than I did in America. Interesting. Um, but I, I so maybe my work life balance hasn't changed. I, and I don't. I don't work. I don't work around the clock anymore. Um, but I think that there's a there's a, a kind of drive and. Um, and, and, and this, I mean, it's a cliche to talk about it, but that kind of puritanism of the American work ethic where if you're not working, you're sinning in some way or another. I mean, last time I was in New York was uh, last summer, and I remember feeling um, very struck by one evening, beautiful evening, I was walking up the West Side Highway, which any of your listeners know, it's like there's a beautiful park alongside the river, and um, there were people running there were all these runners young guys mostly but women too and everybody's they've all got their shirts off and they've all got these perfectly worked on bodies and they all they you know guys who work down in the financial district and they're all like they're out of work and their time out of work is to run like crazy up and down the west side highway and the equivalent location it occurred to me in london that i had recently walked through was the south bank mm. of the thames where at the same time of the evening on a beautiful evening everybody's sitting around having a drink not to say that that's necessarily a better lifestyle choice, but there's something about it that was really just like, oh, thank God, what a relief. And so um, I have felt often since moving back to the UK that that this kind of uh, ex expectation that there is leisure time, that there is time when you're not answering your email, that you don't have to look at your phone, that you can go to the pub after work with your friends and hang out. All of that I find really intoxicating and kind of relaxing and, and as my teenage son would say, chill. You've written about so many different subjects and I wonder how much you feel like you can switch off from them when you're working on them, when you're in your own free time with what you're reading and do you, do you, is it, are you good at sort of saying, no, I'm, that's, that's a working topic now, I'm not going to spend the rest of my evening delving into it no I'm not <laughs> okay. I'm not and when I'm reading for work it, it really does get in the way of reading for 
pleasure. Um, and it, I do feel like most of the reading that I do has, ends up being for work. Um, so I, yeah, I don't switch off. I don't, I don't know, I don't know many writers who do. I think that you're, you know, you're constantly in the thing that you're thinking about, and um, you know, sometimes you're lucky enough to like. I wrote a profile of Jesse Armstrong, so my job was watching Succession, you know, which is also what I would like to do in my free time. Yeah. So that was great. <laughs> um, a lot of what I do, uh, a lot of the things that I do for work, do end up being things that are really interesting to me in my free time, whether I'm writing about an artist or I'm writing about a, a theatre director or, you know, or I'm writing about some political change where I want to, you know, I'm, I'm reading the news and I'm thinking about what's happening and, you know, or I'm writing about the royal family. Uh, turns out I can write endlessly about the royal family. Um, so, uh, yeah, I don't, I, don't, um, I don't quite switch off the clock, um, but that, you know, but there's a lot of time when I'm not sitting at my desk writing for sure. sure. Have there been any kind of subjects in your career that have sparked a lifelong passion that might have sort of surprised you? It's a really good question. I mean, I, I've written um, a lot about the theatre, which wasn't something that I was passionate about beforehand. And um, and I wouldn't say exactly that I'm passionate about now, but I, I found that I know a lot of stuff that I about certain areas like the theatre. Um, there are things that I'm that I in my actual real self life I don't really care anything about like fashion but I love writing about clothes because I like describing them so it's a, it's a I, I don't I don't follow fashion I don't wear fashionable clothes but I love I love do you know I love writing about how a fabric falls it's a weird wow. thing to discover that I like to do that's amazing um, yeah there's a couple of things um, but I it's it's much it's 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 not so much um, yeah I can't think of something that I've discovered through work that I have then followed as a as a passion. It's more like you know I wrote about swimming. I wrote about the the English sort of fascination with cold water swimming and the trend for cold water swimming that happened when I got here because that was a thing that doesn't exist or hadn't wasn't existing in New York. And so my personal interest my personal kind of swimming curiosity led me to write about that um, and sometimes I think that that uh, you know that that kind of curiosity about a subject um, that then will lead me to explore it more deeply is you know is some is where some of the best stories start I mean you've done so many amazing profiles as well and uh, I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure there's been a lot of times where the expression don't meet your heroes has, has probably come true for you. I won't ask you to name any names, but um, has there been anyone that you've particularly admired who has kind of blown you out of the water when you've actually had to kind of interact and write about them? Oh, there are lots of people that are amazing to me. Like, it was amazing to write about Margaret Atwood in the aftermath of the 2016 election in the United States. That was a really, to go up and spend like four days going around Toronto with Margaret Atwood, talking to her about yeah this the, you know our current apocalypse was really really <laughs> fun um i mean i one of the things that sticks in my mind um most forcefully was that i was 
lucky enough to um, be asked early on in the sort of rehearsal process for Hamilton, did I want to come in? There was going to be this musical, it's kind of weird. Wow. Do you want to come in and follow the course of the nine months or so prior to the opening of that off-Broadway? And I, so I did. So, I, and I wrote a profile of Lin-Manuel Miranda, um, who is amazing, of mm. course. But to be uh, able to observe that the making some of the making of that thing and to be in the room watching that all go on and to talk to him about the process of that from you know eight months out to the night of you know opening night um that was one of those experiences that i don't think i will have many of in my life where you you know that the thing that you're seeing is a work of genius <laughs> and is going to blow everybody's minds when it happens and and it and it did and I you know yeah. I, there have been a number of occasions where I've been I've written about so, someone that I think wow this person has really got something going on in their brain that is beyond just being very clever mm -hmm. um, but that was one of those experiences where you sort of see it sounds like such a cl cliche to say it but you see history being made and you know, I told all my friends, buy tickets for this thing. You're going to want to see this thing. Wow. Some of them are sensible enough to listen to me. Um, and you've said it in a, in a, uh, articles in The New Yorker, um, you've talked about so many different topics, uh, ecological and, and plays and, and, and so many things. Is there a topic at the minute that you're feeling, you're feeling particularly attached to? Uh, it's always the one that's like round the corner. You know, I do, I, 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 I don't, I don't have, I mean, one of the peculiar things about my career, and I've been doing this for a long time, so I've never really developed a specialty. I mean, I write profiles, so that's a specialty, I suppose, but it's, I, you know, there are such a broad range of people. It's not a specific sphere of culture or politics or life or anything like that. Um, and I, uh, and I really, really like the variety and I, and I love the uh, writing about things that I know nothing about. I just wrote a piece about um, the use of timber in architecture and people building buildings that are structurally made from timber rather than concrete and uh, steel. I don't know anything about architecture. I've written a little bit about architecture before, but I don't really know anything about that. Um, so it's a it's a whole learning process for me from you know the day when I offer the assignment or something gets suggested to me that I would like to do it. You know, it's this immersion in a whole, um, you know, a whole, whole catalogue of information and people to talk to and places to go, and it's really, really interesting. And I've been incredibly lucky to have that sort of variety and to be trusted to go off and write about things that I don't really know very much about all of the time. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I, yeah, no, there is no thing that I'm pursuing now. I'm waiting or hoping or yeah, like looking for the next thing that I haven't had the opportunity to think about before, that now I get the opportunity to think about. Thank you for listening to the Hay Festival podcast. Next week, I'll be talking to physicist Jim Al-Khalili about teaching schedules and painting. If you like this podcast, then give it a rating or tell a friend about it. This podcast was hosted by Poppy Evans and produced by Xavier Nahrado Achanith. I'll see you next week.